I was introduced to um, the CEO, uh, I was actually the vice chairman of, of one of the largest banks in the world. And I said, hey, I think the internet is the future of banking. And, <laughs> and he, he looked at me um, sternly in the eye and said, he goes, Rob, no one will ever bank online. From Vermont Center for Emerging Technologies, it's Start Here, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. Leading the charge in moving banks and money managers into the modern age, Stowe's Rob Forger opens up to us about starting online bank Everbank and next stage asset managers, personal capital and next capital. Welcome. This is Sam Roach Gerber. And I'm Dave Bradbury. Recording from the Fairpoint Tech Hub in downtown Burlington, Vermont. All right. Welcome, Rob. Thanks for coming into VSET today. Thanks. It's great to be here. Hey, Rob. So, big question. What point in your life did you know you wanted to be an entrepreneur? That is a great question. Probably when I was uh, roughly around 42. 42. So a yeah. little late in life for a lemonade stand. A little so, late in life after I'd actually started the first two companies. And when I was writing the business plan for the third company I started, I actually realized I was like, geez, maybe I actually am an entrepreneur. So it took me a while to uh, come The to accidental then. We got an accidental. Totally. Most, most people realize they want to be an entrepreneur or are an entrepreneur when they, when they discover they're unemployable. But that clearly wasn't your case. Well, yes, I'm probably a little of that as well. Super, super. So maybe you could start us off. Uh, you live in Stowe, which is which is great. My hometown as well here in Vermont. Uh, we're born here and and have made a career starting sort of leading edge financial service companies. And I think maybe the first one I ask you to talk about is 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 Everbank because not many people are aware of what was here and what what it became and and your role with your partners. Informing that, yeah, it was a, it was a uh, again it was very accidental the starting of of Everbank. Um, it, it really actually started when I was trying to get a land loan for a piece of property I was buying back when I was probably twenty three or twenty four, and I had a an experience with a local bank which I will not name that um, provided me with a quote and uh, on for this land loan and. Uh, and then I got another quote uh, from another bank, and they and then I went back to the first bank, and they said, "Oh yes, we'll match that." So I went to the closing table and uh, with the first bank, and uh, they actually did not honor the quote that they gave me for the loan, and I had no choice but to accept it because I was going to lose the the property uh, purchase of the property, and it was at, it was at that point that I said, "Geez, this is really bad if this is actually the way the banking industry works." And and that actually um, you know was the catalyst for the for the creation of the business plan for Everbank. Ouch. Ouch is right. Most and people write a nasty letter. Um, you decided to get a bank charter. Yeah, we <laughs> decided to get a bank charter, and and really, and and what we did, I was already in an industry, actually coming from the mutual fund <clears throat> industry, where we were actually doing what was at that point called alternative distribution channels, which was really phone and mail-based financial services. And the, the internet was just coming online, literally. And, uh, and it was, and I said, geez, I think you could actually apply what I've learned from this other industry, as well as um, what you could see where the puck was going as related to the internet uh, in actually creating a branchless bank. And so that's how it all started. And the idea was very simple, which was to essentially cut out the overhead of a traditional bank and pass that savings back to the consumer 
and we were able to, within two years, operate at, at two thirds of or one third of the cost of a traditional uh, bank, and and be able to provide a great value for the consumer, and also actually create um, uh, a great enterprise. And what what year was that? So I uh, wrote the business plan probably in nineteen you know ninety five ish, and uh, <clears throat> was one and uh, got the team together. I was a young punk still. Yeah. So um, you know one of the key takeaways is always surround yourself with with great people, and and so I found um, you know cobbled together the, the yeah, Frank Trotter, right? Yeah, Frank and, Trotter, and Dave Deland, yep. and, uh, and from Vermont here as well, and, 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 and Vincent Amato, and, and we got that team together, and, and, and we, uh, we launched the business. One, one little side note that I'll mention that actually is quite relevant for, for some listeners, for, for entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs, is you need to be really careful who you listen to. Um, so the little anecdote was um, I was, again, when I had written the business plan, this is prior to launching, um, in 1995, and I wrote the business plan for, for everbank.com. And I was introduced to um, the CEO, uh, I was actually the vice chairman of, of one of the largest banks in the world. And I said, hey, I think the internet is the future of banking. And <laughs> and he, he looked at me um, sternly in the eye and said, he goes, Rob, no one will ever bank online. And so this is in 1995. Oh, come on, Outum. Who was it? Oh, I, I okay. certainly will not, will not say, but, but there's only a few, you know, it's, it's, yeah. there's, it's one of the, truly one of the largest banks in the world. And, uh, and, and so, and today, just in the United States alone, there's 60 million out of 110 households that bank online every day. Wow. So, um, so it seems impossible today, but at the time, these are the smartest people in the room telling you how it couldn't be done. So, one needs to be very careful about who you listen to um, for advice when you're actually trying to disrupt an industry. Isn't that part of disruption, though, is when, is when like, the man or the dominant players absolutely look at you like you're nuts and they say it can't be done? Does that sort of make you realize, oh, they're, they're a target now? C- correct. It's, it's very common and, and actually – and you see it along – you know, I'll be a little bit financial services – Centric, but it's it's really can be applied across any any industry. Is that you know you've had this move from traditional to online banking in the story I just told you. You had the move from traditional to online brokerage, and there's really a similar story with um, with uh, Lonnie Steffens, who is the former um, uh, CEO of Merrill Lynch, said the same thing about the discount brokers or the mm-hmm. online brokers such as Fidelity and Schwab. Like, hey, those guys are the Fidelity Schwab. Those guys are just going to be niche asset gatherers. They're never going to be major players in the marketplace. And this was in the 1999, 2000 era. And you, those two, um, the discount brokers or online brokers are, are, are truly a dominant force now in the financial services industry. And really, which, you know, leads into the, the next part of, you know, what I'm involved in now, which is the digital wealth management space. And, and you have a lot of the same sort of um, naysayers in the marketplace, which is this move from, tr- you know, traditional to digital based advice or, you know, computer based advice. And, and a lot of the, the traditional folks saying, hey, this is never going to happen, but it's actually already happening in the marketplace. And, and, and clearly it's going to be quite disruptive. So two, two of the uh, co-founders of Everbank were, were in Vermont and still based, right? Dave Galan and you. Correct. Right? Yeah. And then if I recall, you had a pretty decent sized office along Route 100 at for probably ten years. Yeah, yeah. Right? we had probably you know uh, at the at the height of you know, we probably had about thirty employees in thirty employees, five thirty employees. Yeah. yeah, outstanding. And what what? How did EverBank end up? And then we'll we'll move on. Yeah, and so so we um, uh, we ended up merging with a a large monoline um, mortgage company in in two thousand two called Alliance Capital Partners, who was looking to really grow out their banking business. And, and um, so 
they took on the name, the Everbank name. We joined forces and and helped you know drive that the growth of the of the larger um, the larger business, which was really quite exciting. A great great team um, all around. Great. Do you still use Everbank? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, that avoid. Yeah. How did you come about starting personal capital in in San Francisco uh, with former Intuit and PayPal CEO Bill Harris? Yeah, it was really by by chance. Um, Bill Harris, um, who's a fantastic guy. Um, he and I had a very close mutual friend, um, um, this this fellow Jim McIntyre, who was actually um, who's actually a Vermont native. Um, He's a VSET advisory a board advisor, person yeah. too. He may not still remember that, but he's <laughs> a great and friend a, and a phenomenal guy, and, and a very close friend as well. And and so so um, so I was actually doing writing a business plan for for something in the in the in the in the space in the digital wealth space and and. Uh, and my friend Jim McIntyre said, you know, you should really talk to um, my buddy um, Bill Harris, who's actually thinking about some similar things out in Silicon Valley. So we got together, met in New York and sort of hit it off and then went out to Silicon Valley. And that's how we started Personal Capital in 2009. And that's that's based out outside of San Francisco. Yeah, so Red, you were, you were commuting for a bit. I remember uh, running into you at that 1040 p.m. Uh, cattle car jet blue flight out of oh, JFK, it, right? it was a wonderful commute the bi-coastal commute yeah i did that for three years and i highly recommend not doing that attention don't do that okay and then um but personal capital's gone on i don't know how much money they've raised probably close to 100 million dollars by now but and that's a public information yep. um and uh what made you sort of step back from that to to either not commute was that the motivation? Yeah, it was. It was about get on the next thing. It was no, no, no. It was. It was just the bi-coastal commute was was grueling. So it was out, you know, in 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 Silicon Valley for three days, um, every other week for for three years, starting up the company. So I'm I'm still a shareholder, but but not involved in the day to day. But it was that was the um, that was the rationale for that. And forgive my ignorance, please. Um, but what is personal capital? So personal capital is a digital wealth management company. So if you think about what is a, a good financial advisor do for you, basically they put you in the middle, right? So it's all about you and they gather information on you and then actually deliver um, a financial plan to you, specific financial advice. And they also um, manage your portfolio for you, manage your investment portfolio, your retirement portfolio. So um, personal capital does that with a, a, a technology first wrapper, so or you know um, construct, and then also with it, with um, this notion of a of a high tech high touch type relationship. So you have this high touch high tech interface, but then also with a named advisor as well. So that's that's what personal capital is. Yeah. Sign me up. Yeah, it's great. You can actually go and download the well, app. Actually, we should probably sign you up for the newest business. <laughs> oh, all right. That, well, so. that does have a great presence here let's, in Vermont. Let's keep yes. moving yes. ahead then. Yeah. I don't yeah. want to get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> I don't want to get too excited. Um, right, just back up for a sec, too. Sure. Why, why is fintech so ripe for disruption? You, know, you use that example of some leading banker saying you'll never do that. But what, what, what specific conditions today just have caused this flood of, of investment and, and really great people leaving presumably safe jobs to go for it to try to disrupt yeah. the current system? Well, I mean, I, the first thing is is that the financial services industry is is huge, right? It's um, There's different numbers, but between 8 and 10% of GDP is the financial services industry. So, if, and then if you think about what financial services entails, it's, it's really truly massive. So it, in, it entails... Traditional commercial banking, it 
it um, entails insurance. It entails, um, you know, the investment management business, the, you know, the mutual fund business, what have you, the capital markets areas and so on. Right. So and then all of the service providers that actually provide the plumbing for all of the groups that I just mentioned. So it's a very, very big, massive market. And so technology has been um, injected at different rates of speed into different uh, these different lines of businesses over the past 20 years. And and um, and there's really very few things in the world that are better suited for digitalization than money, because money is all about, um, dig, you know, frictionless, um, you know, it's a frictionless thing. So that, that's I think that that's why the um, the, the disruption in the in the, in the uh, financial service area is so is so robust. And it's it is also about just continuing to um, put the consumer in control in lots of um, scenarios. And that's sort of a, a newer thing. Um, but it's also just ringing cost out. Transparency around Transparency, fees. you know, ringing cost out, transparency, um, you know, um, making things just more operate in a more efficient manner. Awesome. So, Rob, what is Next Capital? Can you tell us a little bit about how it started? Sure. So, um, so Next Capital is an enter- enterprise digital device company. Um, it was founded in 2013, and VSET was one of the original investors in that and supporters of that. And we thank um, David and the and the VSET team f- um, for that backing. Um, and so, it's an interesting story because there's two pieces to it. Um, there was the original, um, you know, when I stepped back from personal capital, um, took some time off, and and. Um, was thinking was thinking that geez the the digital advice market is going going to be very it's going to be a very large market I didn't want to create another personal capital um, but felt that there was an opportunity to do something um, in, you know in the in the industry that hadn't been done um, as I was building out the business plan um, I really by by chance came across a fantastic team in business called Business Logic in Chicago. And we first started to talk about a commercial relationship, and then we sort of looked at each other and decided to actually do this as one um, new, you know, new business. So they had about twenty-five employees, and Business Logic had actually built out really what could arguably could be said is the first, you know, digital four hundred one k retirement planning and, and portfolio management service in the in the country back in the two thousand three two thousand four timeline. And so they had some very specialized technology, a great team, um, great senior, um, you know, uh, owners of the of the company. So we got together, um, rebranded that company, grew it out, grew, growing the presence out here in Vermont, and um, and um, and and so now going for it. And um, so I, I, I would say that um, what we're focused on at Next Capital is really actually enabling what I'll call large Fortune fifty financial services companies to be able to deliver personalized but scalable advice to their end consumer. So we have partners like State Street Global Advisors, um, Transamerica, Russell Investments, and others that I can't sort of uh, name publicly right now that will be announced um, shortly. But we're, we're working in, in, uh, with, with many of the top you know, 10, 15, or top 10, top 20 financial services companies actually in the world right now, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, that, that list we can't talk about is awesome. Yeah, it's a good it's list. Really awesome. So it's you, good you list. do both the, the, you know, the Next Capital Portable portal is available to uh, Sam or me to go on and, and set up an account and, and, and use. And then you also have this sort of enterprise, which, you know, some people would call it a, a, a B2B to C sort of sort yeah. of mode. 
Um, did you see that sort of being a 50-50 business over the, over no, the horizon? No, we're, we're, we've, you know, we, we had early on in the, in the development of the, of the new Next Capital, we, we had a lot of discussions as a business team about that. And we were already um, – there's a couple of dimensions, not to get into the weeds of it, but the couple of dimensions of our, our business were between the 401k industry, which is a $7 trillion industry, and the rest of the retail industry, which is, you know, $25 um, trillion in assets. So two very, very large markets. We had this specialized technology in the 401k side, so we were clearly going to be in that market. But we also said, hey, we want to have this platform be able to um, deliver automated you know, financial planning and, and portfolio management into the retail market for our partners. So, so being able to actually solve that problem for our partners to be able to co- go across what we would call 401k and our partners retail industry was a big, is a very big, ambitious undertaking. So for us to also try to address the issue of you know, enterprise B2B versus direct-to-consumer B2C was kind of too much for us to take on. Right. So having addressing all four of those dimensions or, you know, simultaneously was just too much. So we really aspire to be an enterprise digital advice platform. So we think that 95% of our business is, is going to be on the enterprise side and really not on the direct consumer side, and which and is very different than personal capital, which is a direct consumer business. And not all right. companies... Uh, you know, go through that process and diligence. You sometimes want to do it all, right? But, you know, team and cash and <laughs> yeah. opportunities are, are, are sometimes too many to pursue, so you got to pick. You have to pick it, right? That's one of the key, you know, part of what any entrepreneur or, or new young business goes through that process of triage, right? So you, and I, I the way I sort of describe it is you, obviously you have to, you know, think globally, but act locally. And, and you also have to understand what your domain is and where you think you can win in the marketplace and making sure that you're, you're not trying to boil the ocean is really, really important. So, so that was one of those hard choices that we had to make. We didn't really want to make that choice, but we did. Awesome. So Rob, uh, you touched a little bit on this, um, but at, at VSET, we always talk about um, companies growing here and there. Um, so Next Capital is a perfect example of that. Um, what do you say to people that are hesitant to grow their business across, you know, multiple cities or states, um, you know, in 2016? Well, it's happening and um, every company does it. So there may be people who say that they won't do it. But it's almost in every large company, you have um, many, many different um, large offices, not just satellite offices, but large offices. I think with, um, with obviously with the advent of technology, I think it's becoming more and more prevalent. And, um, and I think that it's, it's more about the talent than it is, you know, the, um, you know, the notion of being in one location. So if you're dealing, especially with um, specific subject matter expertise, you know, you want to really think about um, where those that location or locations are, and so um, I think it's important not to be too spread out, but at the same time to be um, you know open minded as a company to potentially having multiple offices if there's a good rationale for it. Right, and you guys you know had that from the start, so I, you know it's natural to you, I suppose. But what what makes it easier? What what makes it work for you guys? Well, it's it's you have to invest in it. Right. It, it's it's like any relationship. Right. So you have to invest in the relationship and 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 you have to have 
Um, even if there's um, separate offices, it's really important that there is face-to-face time, literal face-to-face time um, that that, um, that the teams invest in. There's also a lot of um, etiquette related to it in terms of um, communications and um, <clears throat> messaging and, you know, how you do conference calls and all that, like really, you know, uh, mundane not, stuff that yeah. we don't want to talk about yeah. here, but it's actually is quite important but but there is an etiquette to it and and there's a there's a way to do it the right way and there's a way to do it the well, wrong well secret way. santa across cities or is that is that not yet evolved to this multi-location we can't discuss secret we, santa on this okay, radio show okay sorry to bring it up um you know i will say when you first started building the vermont office here uh you recruited in this this fantastic uh, young lady christy from uh, new york city yeah. right who, who worked out of the co-working space here at fairpoint for a bit and you know, to be able to build a team and then you quickly, quickly, maybe in six months, moved yep. into a Karma Birdhouse space, which is fantastic. But I, I think companies like yours and some of the others we're seeing are really attractions. I mean, you're, you're starting to bring in people that, that seem to experience Burlington and Vermont and it fits with their personality or their stage of life. I mean, I mean, Christy had to buy a car. It, like, it was like, and, and then I just remember talking where yeah. she's like, yeah, I, I live out on a road and there's no bus. Uh, and then, you know, that was a great Things experience a for her, right? Yeah. Or uh, yeah. seeing folks from uh, the Chicago office, yeah. you know, Robert Clark uh, moving out. It's, yeah. been, it's been pretty exciting. Yeah. Um, what, uh, you've, you've definitely been really engaged uh, and involved in uh, recruiting and trying to help uh, some of the, the local regional colleges sort of produce talent, not only for yourselves, but but I would say for sort of a, a contemporary enterprise, world class sort of company, and and maybe share some observations: the the good, the bad, the difficult. Please. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's a little bit uh, maybe on a, in miniature is a little bit of a uh, a page out of the VSET playbook, right? Which is what you guys have done a really good job of is connecting with all all the you know with both the um, tech companies around here and, and as well as the as well as the educational system as well as uh, government right so you you kind of have that there's an ecosystem and so I think that we're maybe perhaps trying to do a little bit of the same thing which is um, making sure that um, that we are very connected you know vset obviously has been super helpful and also making sure that we are connected and adding value to the the local universities so as an example um, you know, uh, our some of our senior engineers in our Vermont office are actually working to um, um, doing workshops with UVM um, computer science uh, majors uh, as it relates to prep real real you know real world uh, prep for um, for you know technical exams that a potential. Uh, you gave them your test, right? Exactly. Are we you... gave them our test. We gave them our test that we actually vet our 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 engineers with um, to to the. Um, to the UVM CS uh, folks, but but more than giving them the test, it's actually um, providing some sort of real baseline sort of expectation or you know communication of what those expectations are on them, and so I think that that's a, a you know is a good example. So we're trying to embed um, with the local universities and with um, with Middlebury and and now with um, hopefully with, with Champlain as well, and and um, so that's very important um, for us as part of the system, but also to give back. 
So, um, you know, so we're, you know, we're in discussions to doing, with doing some other things with, I went to the UVM business school, um, you know, with the UVM business school being on some panels and, and the like there as well and participating. So it's, it's about engaging and it's about engaging on a whole bunch of different levels and, and making sure that it's symbiotic and, and not that we're just trying to recruit out of these places, but also actually, um, Ra- raise the whole, yeah, raise the whole bar and we're, we're engaged with, um, you know, with some of the deans um, in some of the different schools and, and providing some very candid feedback about what we think is working, what, what's not working, and, uh, and making sure that there is this plug into the real world, so, which I, we, we, think, we think is quite important. And so um, I, I did notice that Next Capital has a lot of job openings. You guys are, are growing really quickly and including a lot of internships um, and kind of building off of your relationships with these universities. What do you guys look for in, in employees for Next Capital? What, what do they need to have? Yeah, so so there's there's actually a lot of different job openings. What we're focused on here in Vermont mostly is mostly on engineers. So, um, so what we're looking for is uh, – Folks that are that are you know getting their CS degree, for example, um, that are very active and are very dedicated to the craft, and um, it's not that they're perfect, but they but they have a real commitment to learning and are, are curious and and have the sort of the the mental the mental chops, right? So that's that's what we're looking for, and 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 we're actually we're finding some really great people. It's it's a little different than recruiting out of a you know, for example, our headquarters is in Chicago and. So, um, you know, we have very strong pipelines into the University of Illinois CS programs. So we have the ability to actually, you know, recruit at large volumes um, at, at the, you know, super high quality engineers out of there. It, it's, it's more hunt and kill here in, in Vermont and in terms of just not having the same volumes. But, but we're actually trying to change the denominator by some of the training programs and other sort of engagements that we're working on here in Vermont because there's clearly a lot of smart people here. It's just making sure that they have the right training. Awesome. And can you touch a little bit on the, the culture of Next Capital as well um, in terms of, you know, it's, it can be hard to work in a couple different locations and how you kind of keep your, all your employees engaged and, and connected? Yeah, I, I, I don't... Um, to date, it hasn't been a challenge for us. Um, I think that the communication, uh, some of the the, the consistent um, engage engagement, um, the etiquette, uh, and making sure that we're we're not just here or there, but just making sure that we're you know, we're communicating at at multiple levels of the company all the time. We've grown quite a bit. You know, we've grown from. 38 employees to 70, almost 75 employees in the last 12 months. So we're, we're expanding very rapidly, um, and both here and in Chicago. And, and so that's, um, you know, it, it's really important just to be communicating, um, you know, from, from that perspective. I think what's more interesting actually for us is when you have, so the, the name of our, you know, the, the broadly, the, the industry that we're in is FinTech, right? Financial services and technology. So that's like chocolate and peanut butter. So we've got chocolate and peanut butter in our in our company. Uh, Reese's cups is my favorite. Mine too, um, especially when they're um, coming fresh out of the freezer. Which if you don't oh, do yeah. that, I highly recommend. Well, I believe uh, at Halloween in Still Village, you uh, you hand out some Reese's cups on that front porch. That's possible, so. but we do try to save some for later for after hours. Well. I think putting, we won't talk about that either, Robbie. <laughs> putting Reese's in the freezer might be the best piece of advice to come out of this podcast today. That's like incredible. I, I really try to add value wherever I can. Um, it's stunning the value of that. <laughs> so I, I do think I, I do want to touch on uh, a little bit too because you're you're. 
trajectories of companies a bit different yeah. than. Can I just start? Oh, I'm sorry. I yeah. just want to. I do want to. Uh, the chocolate peanut butter comment actually is is important as it relates to your your previous um, question, which is in terms of the challenges. And this is where this is this gets really interesting because when you want to disrupt an industry, <clears throat> sometimes you can do it by taking, let's say, in our industry, all technology people and trying to go solve the problem. And sometimes you can do it with all financial services people and then trying to go solve the problem. But the reality is, is to solve the problems we're trying to address in the marketplace, you really, you have to have the technology chops, but you also have to have the financial services industry subject matter domain to be able to address some of the issues, a lot of the issues that, that we're dealing with. So when it comes to forming your team, if you're an entrepreneur and or trying to figure out who are the, you know, who your co-founders should be or who that executive team, what that should look like. Be really um, thoughtful about trying to get people with the right types of backgrounds and diverse backgrounds that are going to make and drive the success of your business. And getting everybody that has the same resume as you on your team is probably not a good idea. Um, so making sure that you really have that diverse skill set in, in the subject matter subject matter expertise and domain that can help inform and drive your technology based solution is going to is going to deliver you a better product yeah uh, I, I repeat this i can't remember where I heard it from, but you know a lot of startup teams we counsel to really have <clears throat> a, a hustler to sell it, a hacker to build it, and a hipster to to sort of make it cool and easy um Clearly, you're not the hipster, Rob. So I'm not sure I'm I, any of those. Any of those? Yeah. A little bit of each? Okay. Uh, the peanut butter is spread thin, right? Yeah, there. clearly not a hipster. Perfect. I'd uh, like to be, but I... Can you talk a little bit about the process and, and how you've, you and your partners have, have financed the company? Because it is a little bit different than the, the sort of typical Vermont company. I mean, you know, we've now done a, a B round, which, which we participated in a, a tiny yeah. way, um, you know, through the, the sort of seed round. And I think it, it was rationally, appropriately sort of scaled and done. And, and if you could just share a little bit about the how and why, I think would be helpful. Sure. I mean, so as I, as I, I think referenced earlier, so Next Capital is interesting because it's, it, it would be better to um, label Next Capital as a restart rather than a traditional startup. So unlike the previous two companies that I started, which were true startups, this is more of a restart because we had this fantastic sort of team and, and sort of, you know, core technology that was already in place. Um, so, but, but we did need to recapitalize the company. So when we, when we uh, formed the new Next Capital group, we, we, we did, um, uh, you know, we, we did uh, recapitalize it. And we were still working on what exactly the business plan was going to be look was going to look like, and so it wasn't perfect, right? And some, and it was actually maybe even problematic for some um, prospective investors because it wasn't four guys with ten slides or four gals with ten slides, and it wasn't you know a pure growth you know you know you know company either fully formed. It was something in between. So so I think that what we did in our in our A round, which was which was also our seed round, one of the same, is 
in what VSET was was you know instrumental in was actually you know creating this um, convertible type structure, which actually was a catalyst to sort of start the fundraising for our for our Series A, and and was really instrumental in in having a, a Series A. But we ended up raising I think about six million in our in our Series A round, um, and and then we raised uh, about eighteen million in our Series B round, and um, with a mix of of um, fintech venture companies as well as strategic investors in the company and um which i and we could talk a little bit about that as well if you'd like to about strategics yeah love it. it's an loved interesting it. topic could talk for an hour on that one alone and and um, about 50 seconds yeah so so um 55 so, seconds, so strategic so. investors um some venture firms will say don't um have strategic investors in your capital stack uh, and the reason they say that is because they can be deemed to perhaps, you know, um, to be a controlling entity in your company. And I think that that's true. Um, however, that the strategics, if, if done right, can actually be a huge accelerant for your company as well because they become potentially a, a natural uh, customer for you. And so what's really, really critical um, if you have strategics um, in your capital stack, I actually recommend if you're going to have one, have multiple because, right. because the optics in, and I think from the reality from the outside perspective is that, oh yeah, they've got strategics in there, but they don't have one, they have multiple. So I think that that's actually quite valuable um, as an insight. I think that the other thing that's an important insight is to actually um, just make sure that your, your corporate um, structure and your investor rights are very well balanced with the company rights, so that the that the um, you know a strategic you know partner isn't um, isn't actually controlling your company. Right. Right? They don't have blocking rights or right of first refusal. Yeah. Those yeah. perverse conditions have have sort of melted away. It, it seems as corporations have cash that they need to deploy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Certainly, the exit values get too high, so they almost have to buy in earlier. Um, right. Exactly. So, so strategics, I think, can be really good. You just need to do it the right way. It's probably good to have multiple in, in there. And there needs to be very frank discussions up front, not just from a legal perspective in, in a governance and control perspective, but also from a perspective of understanding, you know, when you step into the boardroom or when you s- step in as a shareholder, that's different than your commercial you know, um, any commercial relationship that one may have with your par- right. your company. And and we've done a really good job with that, I, I would say, knock on wood. And uh, and others have too. But I, I've also seen I've also seen that not work out very well. So you have to be very careful um, when when that's being structured. Yeah, I mean one of the one of the, the knocks on that has been that, you know, often in the corporate hierarchy who you're dealing with sort of rotates and moves on versus a, a venture investor and a traditional fund, you know, might be with you for ten years. Exactly. So, so that's that's yeah. a trade off, I yeah. guess. Um, it, do you think there's a particular advantage for strategics in sort of this regulated market you're in that it that it signals to either the end consumer or to within the within the larger asset manager that that this is legit. We can bet our reputation, bet our basically fiduciary duties on this. This this company and, and enterprise platform. I, I think that the what we're seeing broadly speaking, and I'll you know this may apply to our company as well, but but more broadly, at least in the fintech space, <clears throat> you're seeing more and more um, large financial services companies set up their own venture arm 
and or and, and or innovation arm inside of their companies. And the reason for that is that they understand the power of the digital disruption that's happening in the industry. And they know that if they're they're not staying relevant and current, that that there is ultimately an existential threat to their company. Not next year, not five years from now, but perhaps 10 or 20 years from right. now. Winter's coming. Kind of yeah, thing, exactly. Right? So, so I think that there's a, <clears throat> it may be a little bit offensive and a little defensive, but you're seeing that more and more. Um, and so, so more and more of these firms have set up these arms to be able to make these types of investments to ensure that they can um, engage. So yes, it's a, it's a signal to their own executive teams sometimes and, and, and less about, I think, market window dressing to saying, hey, we have to, um, we have to stay relevant. We have to stay on the forefront of what's going on in the marketplace. And we also, um, the, the old model in the industry was, was less about partnering and it was, it was about doing it all yourself. But I think more and more, even very successful um, technology-driven financial services companies have found that it's hard for even them to keep up. The ones that are, you know, investing 100, 200, 300 million dollars a year in their technology budgets are not keeping up. So that they, more and more of these large firms are saying it's it's okay if we partner for you know certain you know functionality that we need inside of our company. We don't have to invent it here. So so investing in these companies is a way to actually. Um, stay relevant and, and also, you know, pick what they think perhaps are going to be some of the winners. Yeah, I mean, we've seen that with another portfolio company, Pony Express in the cybersecurity world, right, which is such yeah, a huge exactly. concern for, for any financial uh, institution. But, you know, bring in what, what people do very well so you don't have to. And I think that's, uh, yeah. that's a great model. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. One, one yeah, quick please. point on that. I, I mean, I think that it's interesting – AWS and Amazon, what they've done in the hosting world to actually drive this. So it was not too many years ago, it was literally only five years ago, that it was truly almost unheard of for a large financial services company to host in the cloud. Now everything, whether it's private cloud or whatever, everything that these large companies is, are, are doing now is going out of their own data centers. And, and, and it actually, I think that helped it, that was an infra- infrastructure decision, but I think that those decisions helped drive a rethinking of, geez, um, if I'm, I'm actually outsourcing my hosting, which used to be the holy grail that that was going to be my da- data center, maybe I should be thinking about these other things too, right? Interesting. So, so that's, that, I think that that's had a very you know, interesting impact on outsourcing of technology and financial services in general. The... Uh a question around, uh, you, you sort of touched on it earlier, but I, I, I want you to talk about the tension because you've seen this in a number of businesses between the engineers who want to build it and build it, how it will operate well, and sort of the product, you know, consumer-facing folks that, that have the customer in mind. Like, what, what, what lessons have you learned that, that really define success or failure around that, that tension? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll answer it in a different way. I'm, maybe I'm not being direct enough. But the, the the first thing that comes to mind to me is actually around. For us, we're an enterprise platform, which and so you know, we'd like to be the sales force of the digital advice space. So for all these large ins- institutions to be able to use us in a very easy and configurable way. So 
for our business to succeed and scale the way we want it to scale long-term, both from a product perspective, as well as from an engineering perspective, is actually based on not having um, reusable code, but configurable product or configurable platform. And that's a very, that's hard to do. And that's really what we're focused on, actually from both sides, both from the product side, as well as from the engineering side, is actually trying to solve for that um, re- really hard, um, you know, um, you know, um, undertaking. Okay. Um, well, I'm going to ask this, Sam. You know, what? How can Vermont? How can this community help companies like Next Capital get further? You know, there's uh, there's a list of things we we can do as a state that that you know harm. But you know, what what might we as a community? We got a new governor, Governor Scott, coming in, who's awesome. Uh, in a community that responds, but what, you know, are there, are there a couple things, Rob, that, that you and your partners would, would view very favorably? How can we help? Right. Oh, is that, I should have just said that, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Shoot. No, that's, that's all right. Yeah. I, I, I think that, I mean, at a very macro level, there's, there's obviously a, a few big things. I do think that <clears throat> Vermont does not have a reputation um, nationally as a place that's open for business. So that's really unfortunate because A, we have, you know, a physical place that's second to none and we have a highly educated workforce. Um, and we have many, you know, many universities and colleges, you know, relative vis-a-vis to our, our total population. Don't forget the beer. And the beer is pretty good, but that's um, for another discussion. Uh, so you should have come for the four o'clock. Tape. Exactly, it's way too early, everybody, for for that. So, um, so, uh, but, but I, yeah. So, so I, th- I do think that being open for business, <clears throat> excuse me, and being known for being open for business is actually a big deal. Um, I think that there's denial um, inside of Vermont government <clears throat> that um, that we have a good reputation nationally for being open for business. I we don't. We have a good reputation for being a great state and all the things I just mentioned, but but not for being open for business. So I, I think se- secondly, <clears throat> there's uh, I won't name names, but there's politicians who like to rail on big corporations in inside of our state. And I think that one of the big problems is that that um, for small businesses to succeed, you have to have the whole ecosystem and the whole spectrum from mom and pop businesses to small businesses, to startups with with growth potential, to big big businesses. There's an ecosystem there. And when we don't have large corporations or large businesses in the state, it gets really hard for us to have a good startup ecosystem. So big companies need love too inside the comp- inside of Vermont, not just little companies. And I think it's really, really important. I think that there's um, it's easy to demonize um, bigger companies, but you know what happens when a small company becomes a, at, at what point does a small company um, become out of favor with the state politically? You know, is it when they have 500 player em, employees that they actually go from a beloved, you know, small business to a hated big business? Like when exactly does it happen? So I think that we need to really change the dialogue in the state related to this topic. And I'm very passionate about it. And, uh, and, I, and I think it's actually a real, um, real issue. The other things I would mention quickly Obviously, um, into our education system, I think that we we absolutely want to have um, world class 
you know, and you know, engineering, but also other areas. Obviously, I'm being a little tech centric here. Um, you know, in our in all of our our um, set, you know our higher education um, uh, institutions in, in Vermont, I don't think we're there yet. I think we're making some strides, but I think that um, we need to commit at that level to ensure that we can actually drive scale as it relates to um, you know um, technical talent coming out of the state. I think that that's fundamental. Um, and, and then I think that the, the last piece I'll mention is really is, is the glue. So I talked about the ecosystem with, between in the spectrum of small business to large business. I think that there's an, another ecosystem that's really important, and that's the connectivity between, um, between the, educational, um, the, the educational institutions, government, um, uh, the capital um, access points, uh, and and uh, and 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 you know in our business community, so I think that it's, that's really really important that we work on continuing to sort of create that e- ecosystem. And this is not a shameless plug for VSET, but there's a lot of folks that um, that talk the talk, but there's very few that actually walk the walk. And VSET is actually is doing just that, is trying to create that um, not just critical mass, but also this 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 glue that can actually create this this ecosystem which is which I think is actually a virtuous loop if we if we get it right so I would say that that's probably uh, oh, I didn't even tell you to say that uh, I'm blushing uh, so now Dave Dave you. owes me a four pack of Hay toppers now after that <laughs> mark that down we do that um, I have one question before we do the wrap up Sam. please is that, go for is it is that good I'll make it short. Uh, well, one's a statement. Thank you for being a mentor and an advisor also, Rob. I've asked you numerous times over the year to sit down with, with the starry-eyed teams, and, and you've been just so accessible. So thank you. You're an example of paying it forward here in Vermont. Uh, Bitcoin. Should I be putting a Bitcoin in my kid's stocking, or is this just sort of a, a fantasy thing? Uh, Great question. Yeah, as a, as a regulated entity or having a subsidiary that's regulated entity, I'm not going to touch that as it relates to investment <laughs> advice. Um, so I'm going to take a full punt on that. What I will say <laughs> is that there is a. I, I will I will talk about um, Bitcoin as a as a, a service. Yes, as, okay. a, as a service. So there's 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 Bitcoin, the currency, and there's there's the blockchain under under underneath it. Um, <clears throat> Bitcoin, the currency. Uh, I think is an interesting experiment, but um, fundamentally uh, not so good. Um, and it, but I think that the blockchain is really interesting in terms of actually <clears throat> looking at new ways to um, to actually uh, create um, general ledger systems, transa- large scale transactional um, systems that can be used in a whole bunch of industries, whether it's financial services or other. I think it's very intriguing. I've I've talked to some people who have been very close to the blockchain area, trying to do some very large things inside of consortiums of large institutions. And they've been skeptical. They, they went in very hard into the, the blockchain world, but it have not been able to quite sort it out. Crack it, yeah. And I, I don't, so we'll see where that goes. But I'm, I'm actually very intrigued because the notion of having more f- uh, frictionless transactions, um, ir- irrespective of what that transaction may be, whether it's around a real estate transaction or Buying, you know, goods um, or or financial services, I think, is really still very very intriguing, but nascent. Okay, then I'll go go to Plan B, which is which is a great one. I guess it's a couple of pairs of darn tough socks from uh, Rick Cabot for the kids this year is the probably a, an alternative. I do have my darn tough 
socks on it. And I have to um, also state that I am sponsored by Darn Tough. Darn Tough so um, I probably should stop there. I, I've, I, I'm wearing Darn Tough today. How about you, Ryan? I've got one Darn Tough on. Sam? So three. <laughs> oh you know my what? God, I am. Totally. Holy That's good. Hey, Rick, We're four for four Rick, here. That's good. Rick Cabot, you're coming. you got to do this podcast with us. Right? Yeah, we'll invite, we should definitely invite Rick onto we'll this. It is supposed to be 30 comedy. below today, so this is uh, appropriate to talk Yeah, about. Rick, I'd, maybe a couple more pairs, please. Okay, Sam, this is the Rob. First of all, you're the first one to plead the fifth. You know, I'm not going to answer that question. So that was awesome. We needed that. We've we needed that, that, you know, because yeah. we're, we're kind of pushy, hardcore type. Um, but why don't you sure. hit him with this last one? Yeah, hit you with the last one. This is—I mean, this is the best. You're, you guys were easier than the Bloomberg Radio interview I did last week. So okay, then we need to like step our game up. Yeah, I you think. do. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, you didn't get the last question yet, though. So maybe everybody gets this question. It'll even the scale here. All right. <clears throat> Magic wand. If you could change one thing about Vermont today, what would it be? Mud season. <laughs> nice. Nice. Just eliminate. So we just go snow yeah. summer. Yeah, correct. I would but, I would but just But that's it, happened the last two springs. Right? That it's is, over like April first, right? Yeah, just 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 get rid of mud season and all all's good. All of our problems are solved. Good. So uh four inches of snow overnight. We did you take some laps this morning before coming here at the mountain? I did not, but 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 David and I did do a strategic offsite on Monday morning, um and that was pretty pretty good. Boy, I've been outed. Yes, it was. It was. It was great. I don't think that's any secret. You do your best thinking. The fresh air, or something. It was early. It was eight a.m. It was so, early. Yeah, we were off by nine a.m. Yeah, so, we were, we were um, early. All right, we may have to edit this one out, <laughs> <laughs> or not, Rob. Awesome. Thank you, Rob. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Hope you'll come back. Absolutely. This has been Start Here with Sam and Dave, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and even the accidental entrepreneur. The series made possible by the Vermont Technology Council and Fairpoint Communications. Follow us on Twitter at VSET, that's V-C-E-T. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to work.